Good day, greetings, welcome to another episode of Talking Out Your Arts. I'm Hayden Jones. And I'm Sam Foster, and we are joined by... David Carberry. David Carberry. David. Why are you here, David? Now, David, David is always here. He's omnipresent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you don't know, David Carberry is the creative producer for Shock Therapy Productions, and he's produced this entire podcast, done an amazing job behind the scenes. Sometimes and- you'll hear him in certain episodes... Yeah, sometimes uh, you'll hear like shouting in the background. from the background like this, kind of going, uh, asking, asking questions. Just the, the guy, the, the, yeah. the, the creepy guy in the background. Just we thought yeah. it might be a bit of a running theme for a while. Yeah. Just, you know, every now and then you hear this little murmuring mumble. Yeah. Through. But it's this prompting w- people. But yes, we, this week we, we thought, bring David in. Yeah, we thought we'd give you your own microphone. Yes, I've upgraded. Yeah. Tell us why. Who's the guest? The guest is my uncle, um, Paul Carberry, and um, it's not entirely nepotism, but uh, I guess because we're exploring the boundaries of what we consider to be an artist or you know where creative practice exists, and we were talking about engineering and um, ingenuity and creativity within engineering, and um, I was like, well, my uncle has designed a motorcycle. Yeah, and, and at that point we were like, what? Uh, yeah, what do you mean? What do you mean? Designed a motorbike? We were like, what? So he like does motorbike customization or something like that? And you're like, oh, no, not, not exactly. exactly. Yeah. And uh, and then it was kind of like, yeah, right. So he's he's taken uh, a basically a, a 500 cc Royal Enfield bullet and doubled the engine and made a. You call them a double barrel? Is yeah, that... the Carberry double barrel. The Carberry double barrel. <laughs> the name of the engine. And um... Yeah, done something quite creative and at the time really innovative and in, in a way, as we spoke about um, with Paul, how these trends you know, within fashion and design and everything kind of go around and if you're in tune to those frequencies, you can kind of pick up on them. And so, mm. yeah, we spoke about that a bit with him. And it was kind of fascinating chat to kind of get, well, like we, you know, as you'll hear, listeners, we, we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of, pardon the pun, uh, of the, the process that he went through and the journey that he went on, um, but also kind of the, the why and the, and the inspiration. And it's just a, you, you don't have to be a, a motorcycle fan to, to get into this. I think it's just an interesting to hear someone's journey that mm. started as, as a genuine passion project. Mm. And, and he went through all these like, ups and downs and twists and turns it's, it's quite inspiring to the fact that he yeah traveled it led to, him on a lot of his life experiences over the last 20 years yeah traveling to other countries and learning of, new languages and all this kind of stuff you know yeah and was kind of doing it before stem was cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a big vision it's a really big vision and a massive journey that he's been on for 20 years and um even though i've been there for part of it um, and on the periphery, um, you know, uh, as his nephew saw the first prototype and stuff like that, it was really interesting for me to. Yeah, di- you showed us a photo the other day of you sitting on the first prototype, yeah, which yeah. is pretty cool. So yeah. we should chuck that up on the show notes. Actually, yeah, for so sure. Have a photo of Dave on the uh, on the original prototype. Mm, yeah. Um, and if this is your first uh, episode, if you're joining us for the first time on talking out your arts, um, welcome. Um, and you can either, you know, listen to this episode, why not? Um, but we've got a, a, a host of other amazing episodes with amazing, interesting and eclectic guests from a range of different backgrounds. So Absolutely. And we've got a special deal. If you get this episode, you get the rest for free. Aren't, aren't they all free? Because they're all free. Oh, That's yes, the best yes. part. Yeah. Unless you don't want them to be. We do have a Patreon page that you, uh, that you can go to if you want to uh, contribute to the ongoing uh, development and 
delivery of this uh, podcast, uh, Shock Therapy Productions, Talking Out Your Arts. You can go and do that. Uh, we basically make this podcast for little to no money. It's something that we really believe in. We want to uh, continue to bring awareness to the uh, creativity and how it exists in various ways in our world. So, in many ways, like how this is a passion project for Paul making this motorbike. It, it, this is our passion project in many ways, but it, it would, you know, it can be helped along by your support if you if you are getting into this. And and if you don't, if you're not in a position to financially support it through Patreon, then actually the best way you can support it is by telling other people about it. Mm. Spread the word, um, follow it on on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. And you know, it's really hard with small independent podcasts to kind of cut through the. The, the mainstream um, companies that are pumping out podcasts now. So if, you, if you're enjoying this, if you're one of our regular listeners, please tell your friends. And, you know, I'm always get, giving podcast recommendations to friends going, oh, I need a podcast. And there's so many times people are on Facebook going, oh, is anyone know any good podcast? So if you're listening to this, give us a plug somewhere and tell your friends and um, we want to share it with as many people as possible. Absolutely. And uh, enjoy the episode. So uh, without further ado, uh, for Cubbery. Uh, Paul Carberry, thank you for joining us on Talking Out Your Arts. Um, yeah, great to have you on board. And um, yeah, it'd be, uh, I guess, a good place to start maybe to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what you do. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks very much. Um, Paul Carberry is my name and um, uh, I mess with motorcycles, you could say. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, I've <clears throat> uh, been um, in a mechanical trade all my life and uh, into motorcycles and mixed those two passions. And uh, yeah, I've, I've built them, I've raced them, um, you know, in early days and stuff. And uh, ended up uh, coming about to uh, convert the Royal Enfield 500cc single motorcycle into a uh, V twin 1000cc, 1100cc. Awesome. Um, Would you call yourself yeah. uh, an inventor or an engineer or um, an entrepreneur or any of those things? Um, I wouldn't say an inventor. It was more, more on the engineering side. Mm-hmm. Inventor is someone that comes up with something new. What I've done was basically um, used, you know, basic engineering principles to execute this. So are you an engineer by... Trade is that your is that your um, background? My background's uh, basically a welder, uh, but I've moved through all the trades, and uh, largely because of this project. And now nowadays, everything you need to show certificates for I had trouble getting work in uh, trades I've been doing for decades, and so I got um, trade recognition through TAFE, and they they actually I was quite surprised they awarded with me with. Um, an advanced diploma in engineering. Okay, without having to go and actually do any, just just through recognition of prior learning, basically. Well, that's right. I showed him what I did. Of course, I'd lost a lot of my history, but uh, this motorcycle venture was documented and it had everything in there, you know, everything from doing doing drawings, designing, uh, working with different materials, welding, to do welding tests for the government, you know, for, to get the bike certified, 
you know, all this information had to be given to the, given to the government to get them on the road. So that was documented by government, by um, media and so forth. So, and, uh, so is it fair to say you were, were you a motorbike mechanic first and then you had the idea for this um, Frankenstein uh, bike uh, that you wanted to make and then, then you had to go and get all of these extra certificates and certifications because of the project? Is that sort of how it how it worked? No, it was no, it was after the project actually. Yeah, right. Um, after the project, I um, you know, it stopped stopped there for a while, and I went tried tried to find work, and I wasn't recognised as as a tradesman. Basically, I couldn't even get into the door, you know, in a trade which I've been working in all my life. So that's when I got the trade recognition, sort of. So when the, after I did the project in uh, Australia, and I did built we built. Um, 14 bikes, two engines, something like that, <clears throat> and had them certified for the road. And so it was sometime after that I got the trade recognition, yeah, and they looked at all the drawings and stuff that I did on the motorcycle and uh, had a couple of the motorcycles there I could show to the to the guy testing me and so forth, and, and he was duly impressed. Probably a good time, Paul, yeah. to tell us a bit about uh, what the project was in a, in, a, in a nutshell. How would you explain it to somebody who, who knows nothing about it? Uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a tricky one, um, <clears throat> hard to put in a nutshell. Um, but I doubled the horsepower. Of this. I basically put two engines into the one and doubled the horsepower, and uh, and uh, built a frame around that, and you know uh, other things to make it all work. Had had you done any other um, motorbike customization prior to this? Yeah, I'd, I'd done some, but nothing near this to this degree. Mm. And uh, it's it's a huge undertaking, and I didn't do it all myself, of course. Um, you know, a good pattern maker, good foundry, and uh, I employed um, um, a very clever engineer by the name of Ian Drysdale, and uh, he'd already done a V8 out of two Yamahas, mm-hmm. um, and he did a lot of the, the tricky work you know, on the drawing board and stuff, uh, and I co-designed it with him. So he did a lot of that engine work but i was still involved along the way in the decisions and stuff i did a lot of the starter motor design arrangement did i did all the frame design work and that was just to get the prototype and then after the prototype i just continually upgraded and upgraded and upgraded you know as each bike was a each bike was different as i as i um perfected it so just to take a, a step out a little bit um just back to Hayden's point. So, yeah, from from my perspective, uh, what you've done essentially is to take a motorbike that's existed for 60 years, um, pretty much in the same platform, like a single-cylinder 500C engine, and um, quite a popular bike to some degree. It's even more popular now, but when you started 20 years ago, it wasn't nearly as popular. But what you did was take that bike and then design a different engine to go inside it and and not just as a one-off project but essentially with the vision of getting it on the production line um, which is essentially what Enfield ended up doing um, but they've just gone with a different design a slightly different design on the engine Um, but it's involved a massive journey of you initially doing this prototype um, and, and doing 15 bikes essentially in Australia before getting, heading over to India 
um, and uh, attempting to get it all off the ground uh, over there. Yeah, and I think that's important to. It'd be interesting to hear your insights, Paul, because you know, obviously, there's a lot. I, I'm in, I ride motorbikes. I'm into motorbikes. There's a lot of guys out there that customize motorbikes, and and will, it, they're kind of project to project basis on an individual um, one bike, and they have this passion project, and they're like, I just want to do this for myself. So it's interesting if if was that something that that evolved over time. Or was it always from the get-go um, your vision to get into production for these things and, and for this to be something that was available on the market as a as a, a new bike, not just a one-off kind of um, customization? Yeah, that was always the intention mm-hmm. from the very beginning because, look, I've seen some amazing uh, build, bike builds out there. Guys have done just uh, mind-blowing stuff and I think, well, that's cost a lot of work and a lot of time, and it's only one of them. Um, you know, it'd be, wouldn't it be nice to have more of them? You know, other people can join enjoy them as well. Uh, so that's always been my concept. Um, make, maybe make a bit of money out of something I enjoy, mm-hmm. um, which is a hard thing to find. Mm. Uh, um, getting back to the, the the bike, the original bike, like you were saying, Dave was. Uh, the Royal Enfield's an interesting story on its own. It, the British company uh, started building their bikes in India uh, in about 1957. And uh, then uh, in England, they went bust in 1970. So, and in India, things don't change much. And they basically built the 1957 motorcycle up till 2007. Uh, almost untouched. It's still a cast iron cylinders and stuff like that. It's still the same bore and stroke. Um, I've actually put the engines into the older ones. They actually mm. bolt straight in. Mm. That's how close they are. They're beautiful. They're up bike electric. Like yeah, they were yeah, very unique. Um, and they started to get popular because this piece of history was put on ice. Mm. Um, when I first heard about it, I thought that, that's incredible because I love the old British bikes. I used to ride British bikes around the paddocks when I was young on the road, and they all died out. But this one was preserved by India, mm. um, and the Indians love it. They're everywhere. They, you know, it's like they're Harley Davidson to them. Well, I, I always compare and, it to uh, like in Cuba, you know, because of the embargoes with America. If you go to Cuba and they're all driving around in these old nineteen fifties um, Chevys and stuff like that, these American cars that they just kept fixing up and kept on the roads and so um i know when my brother went to cuba he was like he, he said it's you're walking around havana like you're in a in a um like in a time machine like you've stepped back in time because mm. they're just you know keeping preserving these old cars on the road and it's a bit like that in india with the royal enfields they're everywhere they're literally everywhere yeah, yeah. well it was similar except in India, they they still produce them. They had the factories, that, and not just Royal Enfields, uh, like the Morris Oxford um, everywhere, the Willys Jeep, um, uh, Jawa motorcycle. They're, they're all being made. Some of them are still going, um, and a lot of them look the same as they did back in the fifties or sixties. It's quite amazing. When I first got to India, it was like an automotive museum. Like sixty percent of the vehicles were were new, old vehicles. Mm. Is that just um, is that good design, or just purely like cost and circumstance? Cost and circumstance. It, it suited them. They were, they were cheap, rugged, 
vehicles, easy to fix. Mm. Um, the de- the design's already been paid for, so that the the the, um, the original companies of some of these are um, could probably milk a little bit more out of that model, and you see it all through Asia, not so much as in India, but uh, other places where they've got motorcycles which you see in Australia 20 years ago. Mm. They're, they're brand new because they're, they're milking a little bit more out of the design and it, it works for them. Mm. It does the job. Well, and, are, you uh, able to, yeah. um, are you able to speak on a, uh, like to the hardcore, to the hardcore motorbike enthusiasts, mechanics or engineering uh, people out there to the nitty gritty, like use as much jargon as you want on what you did? Can you talk about what you actually did to the engine? Um, okay, I've, I've used the Royal Enfield because it was unique. Um, apart from Harley-Davidson, I think it's the, still the only motorcycle left which has the engine and gearbox separate. So and this, this way I was able to remove the engine and still use the transmission. Mm-hmm. Had to upgrade the clutch, of course. Um, that made it un- unique. But, of course, to make it a little bit easier, I put the starter motor into the crankcases and did something highly unusual. Um, I suppose there was a little bit of inventiveness there as I actually put the starter motor on, driving it onto the crankshaft itself. I put a ring gear gear on the crankshaft uh, and that was in oil. And um, biggest trouble was not making the starter motor work, it was making it sealed. I I used to cast starter motor and I had to seal it. So that gear had to go in and out and turn and all that and uh, the pressure of from the crankcases was pushing oil through the starter motor. So there's a bit of tricky work work on that. Uh, the crankshaft, we made the crankshaft, the crankcases, uh, the cams, oil pumps modified hydraulic lifters from a car, made the timing cover, used car screw on oil filter, and used Royal Enfield top ends, made my own push rods and modified the you know, the, the primary, as I said, so that's what we we had to do. Did you um, have to modify the cooling system at all because you were um, essentially doubling the the CCs of the of the motorcycle? Did you have to change and alter the cooling system in any way? Well, it was an air cooled engine, so I doubled the cylinders, I doubled the cooling, yeah. mm-hmm. and yeah, right. uh, when I did the oil, when I did the oil capacity, um, see a lot of the weak stuff of the Enfield engine is as lovely a bike it is. It's an old design. Most of the faults are down the bottom end. Um, so I made a better bottom end bearings. Like I said, I used two two cast oil pumps, so I had plenty of oil. So I threw away a lot of the garbage when I went into the bottom end, and uh, yeah, put lots of oil capacity on flow. We we did have um, teething problems on the prototype. Breathing was one of the uh, one of the more tricky ones. You know, engine timing and stuff like cam timing and all that, you know, we had to go through all that. Um, starter motor had its issues and its engagement and stuff. Um, but breathing was quite a tricky one because you've got pistons going up and down and they're pushing air in and out and you, you've got um, bypass in the, from the rings, the pressure, you know. You've got oil being pumped all around the place. You've got oil splashed all around the place and you've got to, get positive crankcase pressure out of that crankcase without taking the oil with it, uh, without dumping the oil. So there was, there was a bit of playing around with that. Also, the crank balance on the crankshaft, you, you can't work that out on a drawing board. That's trial and error because you can put a diff- 
put a motor in it into a different frame, it can start shaking. Mm. It's all a matter of harmonics that you just mm. can't yeah, right. cal- calculate. Mm. So um, Ian had a clever idea. He, he uh, put heavy metal, we put drilled holes into the crank cut, crankshaft and he put little heavy metal cobalt, I think it was, plugs in there. And I made a little plug, on the, uh, little cover on the side of the crankcase so I could take off and I could pull weights out and put weights in, take it for a ride and test it without mm-hmm. having to strip the engine mm-hmm. until we got a correct balance factor. Mm-hmm. And then, then then when I produced them, I just imitated that. That's really interesting, the the vibration, like essentially the tone that the engine is making um, in comparison to the frame that it's in needs to be in sync yeah. to some degree to be balanced. Yes, absolutely. It, yeah. It's all harmon- it's all harmonics, hmm. yeah. And you and you got and you what you do is you push like little vibrate somewhere. What you do is you push it out into a, a rev range that you don't use. Hmm. Some people, some some companies push it up high, some push it down low. Like you see Harleys and Nortons, they push it down low. So when they're idling, you will see the front wheel jumping around. Mm-hmm. Mm. And did you? So you didn't do any mods to the frame or the suspension. Or anything else? I uh, most because most of the weight was on the front. Hardly any changed the back. Um, I upgrade the stiffness of the, the um, springs on the on the front and um, heavier oil. The frame I had had to um, the ones in Australia. I I um, I had to use the head stem. Otherwise, it was a considered a complete bike and harder to get it certified. Mm-hmm. So I used the head, original head stem, which is actually harder than making one, um, and then I stretched the frame out of material in between and strengthened it as I went. But in India, um, you aren't allowed, it's the opposite. You aren't allowed to modify vehicles there, so we had to make it a new vehicle. So I made the made the made basically the whole frame, just used the little back part where the seat and the mudguards and that mounted toolbox. Mm-hmm. Which one was better was it was it better to you said it was easier in a way to make it from scratch so that i assume the indian model was kind of easier in yeah a sense. well it was in a sense yeah and and i could make it much stronger mm. and it was just a much better better handler mm. um yeah what gave you the idea in the first place paul like what what was the moment we sort of saw an opportunity to do this and what was the appeal of it at the time like in the landscape of bikes that were around was this Sort of completely in a league of its own. It sort of was, yeah. Not because of its power or anything, just because unusual. Look, like I said, I had British bikes since I was since I was young. Um, the, the motorcycle I was in awe of was was the Vincent motorcycle. Uh, that that coincident was coincidentally that was a single cylinder turned into a V twin by Australian engineer. Even though it was an English motorcycle, Australian engineer Phil Irving went over to England. And he turned the single into a V-twin. Mm. And there's probably a bit of inspiration in that. And some yeah. people say my bike even looks a little bit like it. And I said, well, that's that's a compliment because it was a beautiful bike. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also that it's it will certainly look a bit the same because it's a British single uh, converted to a twin. So it will look it, it will look similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a bit of inspiration there. Um, I always wanted to sort of do something like that and just never got around to it. Um, I was a bit of a loose end in my life at this one stage uh, in my 40s and I was had my own house. I was renting out and living on the rent in Indonesia for a few years and um, 
I thought, well, this is fantastic. You know, I thought um, I could live like this forever, and it was a beautiful place. And but uh, I thought I, I can't do this. You know, maybe when I'm seventy years old or something, I should be doing this. But I, I want to do something. And so I asked myself questions. Well, what what do I want to do? I, I want to enjoy it. I want to try and make money from it. Not necessarily get rich, but try and make money doing it. So 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 I went to uh, flew to India and. Um, Studied up on Royal Enfields and sent a whole lot of parts back back to Australia to study them. And a few people talked me into. Um, they said, "Well, why don't you?" Open, because I was going to start this in do this venture in Indonesia when I was there. And they said, "Well, why don't you sell the bikes first? The singles are already made." A few people said that to me, and I saw oh, sort of makes sense. But I regret that because one, it it, um, it drew too many. Um, Resources from me sucked up a lot of money, and they didn't sell well there because the tax was heavy. So that um, that sort of crippled me a little bit. And uh, so I had a shop there. I was important the Royal Enfields for a few years, but that went down because it, there was two hundred percent tax on on bikes over two fifty cc. So it um, put a nail in the coffin of that one. Um, they're now sending Royal Enfields back into India, uh, so into Indonesia. Um, 350s mostly because they lifted the, the restriction from 250cc to 350cc and now they're selling lots of them because it doesn't have the heavy tax on them. And is that so, part of because I, I know Enfield just released a new, the Meteor, the 350 Meteor, a new range of 350s. Is that for that market specifically or was that because it wasn't, I thought that was an interesting move that they went they all, down from the 500s and well they went up and down in both at the same time roughly. no no they were they always had the 350 the 350 was first uh-huh. and most of the bikes in in india are 350s um it just suits the conditions better they're a bit cheaper yeah, right. um so they already had the 350 i tried to get royal infill to downsize to a 250 i said i'd help them engineer it and uh I said you could break into Southeast Asian market because they've all got this heavy tax on 250 and above. But uh, Royal Enfield wouldn't have that. And so you've had so, through, uh, through the process, that because that's also an interesting part of this whole relationship, I wanted to ask about your relationship with Enfield and at what point did you – Well, so you had the idea, you were like, I want to do this. At what point in the story do you contact Royal Enfield and say – hey, I want to do this and I want to start manufacturing these? And was there sort of a process where they either went, no, we don't want you to do that or we're not interested or, yeah, just are you able to talk about the the relationship with, with them? And Yes, I've had a, a, a long-term relationship with Royal Enfield. <clears throat> oh, it was probably nearly 20 years ago uh, now. I was, I was in India and I'd already started working with Ian Drysdale and, you know, I was getting more parts there and uh, we were starting the design of V-Twin and I saw a picture on the on the wall of this bike shop I was getting parts and it was a V-Twin Royal Enfield. And I thought, what the hell is that? Anyway, you give me the picture and uh, there's someone in England come up with the same idea. No way. Um, the yeah. Same, your, your same idea, completely separate, another guy in England yeah, come completely. up with yeah, com- completely separate. Hundreds monkey. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that is like that, yeah. Um, it probably just needed to be done. So anyway, at some stage I met up with the Royal Enfield factory, the 
management there and I said, told them what I wanted to do and, uh, and maybe they might be interested even. And I said, no, we've already done that. And that was this other V twin. They employed someone in England to do it. Then they scrapped it. Uh. They said they they said they didn't want to do a V twin. But management changed all the time. So by the time I got took three years to get prototype up and run. By the time I nearly had it running, and, and um, the um, C had a new CEO in Royal Enfield was you know seriously uh, upturning things and changing things and upgrading things and. He, he come to visit the distributor in Australia and said, look, I'd like to meet this Paul Carberry and see this bike he's got. Yeah, right. So so uh, he come over to Indrosdale's workshop and I said, oh, shit, I've got the engine apart. So I rummaged around and, you know, put a put an engine together without anything in it just so he could see it. I told him, you know, it's not running. Mm. Um, if you come two weeks later, we'd probably have it running. Um, but he, he was fairly, fairly humble and he's very interested in the whole thing. Um, he even took a few ideas back with him and put them on their production bikes, like I modified their seats to be more comfortable and, uh, you know, I painted the back rail on the frame the same colour as the, the tank. And he, So he took a couple of ideas and, I, you know, I t- take that as a, a compliment rather than a theft. This, this, um, this CEO of Enfield coming out to your, yeah, to your workshop. Yeah, correct. Wow. I met th- met three of the CEOs over the years. Hmm. Uh, later on, the CEO sent a, a technical team out, the head of production, the head of um, development. They come over and they rode the bike and we tried to do a deal, you know, like mm. put it, can we put this in production? Mm. Um, even got to the point of talk- talking figures uh, at, um, on a couple of occasions over the years. But this just dragged on and on, you know, and so did the project. So... Uh, I was well known to them over over the years, but um, they just never took it on. They thought about it, you know. We, you know, had a couple of meetings in their boardroom and talked to them about, it and they said we're going to do a parallel twin. I said, why do a parallel twin? I said, you can get, you you already got the cylinders. Why go making new cylinders? Make a V twin. You know what I mean? I said you can, and you can keep going bigger and bigger. You can get up to thirteen hundred cc with a parallel parallel twin. You're restricted because the cylinders are side by side. But I couldn't convince them, but they said they'd support us with parts. Um, so did they, at that point, they gave you the blessing to, they basically said, we're not yeah. interested, but if you want to continue this thing on your own, we're happy for you to do that kind of thing and supply the yeah, parts. And I, yeah, yeah, that was quite amazing. Yeah, they they, give, they were really intrigued and, and yeah, give us a blessing. Um, so I was... I had to visit the factory, you know, um, off and on a lot of times and work out what parts were needed. And we actually run a, a bike down the assembly line. They've put a bike down the assembly line for us um, mm. with only the parts we needed, like no engines but mm. with wheels, uh, without tyres because we use better tyres, um, you know, mm. all the tinware on it, the electrics on it. And, <laughs> and so that was quite interesting. Mm. But... Um, Unfortunately, didn't get that was just a test run. But unfortunately, didn't get, didn't get to the stage of running a whole herd of them down there. Once you but made, the, once you actually made it, and that, and they put it, they pumped one out of the production line. They saw it. Was there was their response different? Where they were like, "Oh shit, this is actually really fucking cool," or the guys in the factory at least, or were there people around that would like, uh, "Okay, maybe we were wrong not to go with this thing," or 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 did they sort of stick to their guns once they decided they weren't interested? 
Well, they pretty well stuck to their guns. At that stage, that was just an Enfield without an engine. We were going to take that away and then convert it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they also, one stage, bought a bike from me, a complete bike. They, they, they um, sent a bike from India. I had to deal with the, um, the paperwork for a re-export of, of it. And um, so I converted it, pulled it out the box, converted it. They paid full price. Put it back in the box. Of course, it was a bit longer now. It didn't fit, fit in the box properly, did it? So I had to take a tail light and a few things off <laughs> and uh, sent it back in the same box. And uh, wow. then I fl- flew over flew over with a black box in my me, in me pocket uh, so so I could uh, commission it. And, uh, mm. and and they had a guy on there with um, all <clears throat> wires and things plugged into it and had a guy on there test riding. And he was just test riding in the traffic. It was like... Crazy. There's, the traffic's crazy anyway, but he's trying to get top top speed out of this motorcycle. <laughs> wow! In Indian tr- traffic, tr- in Indian traffic and uh, and uh, he would have had to do it yeah, in the it middle was... of the night. I heard once a story that um, Sachin Tendorka bought a Ferrari, um, and and he he used to take it out at at four a.m. because it was too busy. There was no, it was the only time he could take it for a drive because it's like. In India, there's no point having a Ferrari, and so he'd go for a, a cruise at 4 a.m. in the morning. So I imagine they'd be doing a test driving at a, something similar like that to try and get. Well, no, well, no, they didn't. It was in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. Oh my God! In this mad traffic. That's insane. The guy was a good rider, and the, the, <clears throat> they were sending details, you know, speeds and stuff back to the the factory. So that bike um, was was hanging around the factory. They got a test test track at the factory. I actually rode rode that bike. Around the test track, and I'm riding around. And they said, "You better pull that in. It's creating a bit of attention. People are starting to notice it's got one too many cylinders." <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, so, uh, so for them, was that really a um, you know that they just wanted that one bike? Was that sort of a a trophy for a bike for them to have? Was it just an it was an interesting object? So they wanted to have one in the collection. Um, More as like a well, historical. No, nah, no, nah, they. Look, I went into. I could only go so far into the de- development department, but they had Triumphs and Harleys and all sorts of things. Some of them pulled apart and whatever. Um, they were seriously looking at. You know, when when they go make a model, they they do look at several options. Mm-hmm. So it was still it was on the table. Mm. Um, interestingly, I went back after about oh, that they bought that bike about ten years earlier or something, and I went <clears throat> went back to the factory and and. Wandered down the back, uh, this guy was with me um, from the factory, he's showing me around. I said, I want to look at the R&D department. He took me down there and uh, he was probably a bit naive on, you know, who's supposed to be there or not. And I walked into this R&D department, not deep into it. There's another level which no one gets to see, but into the first room. And, I, and I'm looking for my, the bike I sold him. And uh, I'm looking around and there's all these different brands and stuff in there. Got bikes on test and that going on. I'm looking around, where is it, where is it? And I look against the back wall, there's something under a sheet. And I lift the sheet and there it is laying against the back wall, tank removed, rusting away, builders and things have been robbed off it and the tyres were flat. It was looking very, very sad. Mm. Did that break your heart at that moment? Did that, how did you feel? Mixed feelings. I've broken heart. Happy to see it's still there and what's scrapped at least. There's a lot of bikes, uh, prototypes out in the out in the yard in the rain. At least there's some, someone saw goods put a cover over it inside. Um, and that that's that point. A guy leans out the office and yells at us, "Hey, hey, you're not supposed to be there." 
Wow. It's like Area 51. It's like, yeah, you know, Bob say, Lazar. I was going to say, you're like the, the Bob Lazar of the, of the motorcycle world. I don't know if you know who that is, but he was a, pro- <laughs> he was a, pro- a self-taught engineer and, and propulsion expert um, who was yeah, brought, yeah, brought into Area 51 to try and solve the, um, you know, the, the flying aircraft they had, trying to figure out how they were propelling them. Um, and he tells a great story about when he was first taken into into the warehouse and he saw all the various uh, flying machines and things lying around and got, yeah. to, got to get his hands on them. <laughs> yeah, totally. That sounds exactly like yeah. the, the motorbike version yes. of that. Um, just going back a bit, so like that's, you know, Enfield's R&D department. Um, and, you know, when you sort of hear about all the different components that you put together to create this, you know, you're casting heads and you know making custom cranks and valves and and then putting that together with other um existing um off the shelf car parts and whatnot um and i'm just imagining like if you could tell us what kind of setup you have to do this because normally like you're explaining with enfield that have or any other big kind of production line there'd be you know all departments and sheds and engineering, you know, like all sorts of levels of resources and everything. And, you know, are you, were you just doing this in like um, in your backyard or did, did you have like a whole team set up who were, who were working in a production line in Australia? How was it looking? In a, no, in, in Australia, um, basically I did it all myself, hands on, everything from going down, doing the shop and picking stuff up and dropping it off. Mm. Um and the R and D and assembling, but uh, like Royal Enfield, you'd be surprised how how much is outsourced, mm-hmm. and and that's what you do. You don't, you know, I don't try and be a foundry when this foundry's there. They've been doing it for years. Mm. You know, I don't buy a CNC machine for 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 eighty grand when when the CNC machine's out there. You know, I'm not going to be able to pay that often mm. in a hurry. So mm. yeah, you know, I had guys out there. I had a, a network of people, you know, that do these different things. Mm. And so, as the driver of that, essentially conceptually, you're designing that, um, you know, in your head or you know, with drawings or whatever, coming up with the concept for these parts that you need, taking the designs to the founder or um, yeah, etc., and, and getting it made that way. Um, that's right. It was well. First, it was making a prototype. Um, um, and you make a prototype a little bit different to how you make production. But, um, yeah, use the drawings, take the drawings, sometimes samples, um, so forth. And, uh, yeah. It, I see, it, you know, what you just described is, is, not, is not a dissimilar process to what we do, you know, when, we're, you know, when you're making a show. You, in order to do that, you have to collaborate with many, many different people and and like not reinvent the wheel and you go if, if there's someone who whose expertise is av design or or, or sound design or lighting you, you you know you kind of go hey here's the concept can you implement this design this concept for us and then they know that they have the technical know-how um in order to achieve the vision that you have for the for the work and that's i guess that's true of like filmmaking you know a director or a writer yeah, or a ab- producer absolutely absolutely like when david bowie gets up on stage how many people you think are behind him you know yeah. what i mean it's it's it's, uh, it's not just him it's mm. it's all the sound crew it's the band it's uh, everybody set the set the set up the stage and arranged it every, everything there's sound the lighting as you know it's 
So, yes, it's not dissimilar. You know, very few people um, do this kind of stuff one-off. There are mm. people, there are freaks out there which just do it. They're usually um, a lot of them retired guys and they fiddle around the back shed and they do everything the hard way and they'll make piece by piece, but they wouldn't be seriously in production. You know, they're, these are guys that make a one-off. Instead of casting and forging and, and so forth, they'll just machine it and it doesn't matter. They don't care how long it takes them. Mm. Um, you know, there are some some freaks out there that can do that and, uh, and I, you know, I say freak in a nice way. But, yeah, you you need you need a teamwork. Whether it's under the one roof or it's spread all over the industrial area mm. like it usually is. Um when I was making them in India, it was almost like I was following Royal Enfield around. I kept on end up in the you know, same foundries and hardness places and people doing the same work for Royal Enfield. Yeah, right. I thought it was interesting earlier when you said that, uh, you know, this other guy in England had come up with the, the sort of a similar idea and or the same idea and and uh, you said, you know, it just maybe it just needed to be done, you know, because we think of creative, like a really good creative idea. We think that, you know, it's sort of floating around to be a philosophical about it floating around in the ether you know and, and if it's a good idea often more than one person will latch onto it and what you've yeah. done like sam said similar to the creative process where we'll see we might take existing ideas and, and sort of you remix them and and from that you, you by remixing them and rearranging them you you can make something new at the time did you think of this as a as a creative project uh i did I had no idea that someone else had, had, had done it. Uh, and, and like you say, yeah, it's, it's like um, I often wonder, you know, is it floating around the, in, in, in the ether like that? Because so many inventions get invented in one or two, two, sorry, two or three places at the same time and they're all under wraps. Nobody knows what the other one's doing. Mm. They don't even have a clue sometimes and they often fight over patents because of it. Mm. Um, I yeah, I thought happened. it was unique. That used to happen a lot before the internet as well. You can imagine mm. around the world how many ideas would have come into existence at, at a similar time and you got people on the opposite side of the globe working on the same thing and there's no internet to kind of be aware of what's going on on the other side of the planet. And and I imagine that would have just, you know, wouldn't be until you went through that long process of getting a patent for something that you realise that someone even has that idea. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. And and a lot, like I said, a lot of these guys that they keep them under wraps. That's part of the nature of it. When you got something new, mm. you don't tell people, mm. <laughs> you know, in case they do copy. Mm. Um, but look, it's it's happened again. Um, those guys were the first, and that got shelved. I went back to England and got shelved. Um, uh, Norcroft, they were called. Um, and then while I was my, uh, while I was my, or after I made mine, another guy didn't know about me in America, and he built one as well. Mm-hmm. And he ended up eventually uh, contacting me. He said, uh, "If I, I knew you were making one, I would have just bought one from you." Yeah, right. But he'd already gone down the track. Um, did he? I do the... believe mine's the gone. Oh, I was just going. Did he have the same vision as you to get them into manufacturing and production, or was he just trying to make a one-off? That guy in America. He he didn't, but now he is. Yeah, oh, right. interesting. But just just some very small numbers because mm. I guess people just kept on asking him, right? Can mm. you build one for me? Well, mm. Yeah, I so guess that kind of brings me to the other sort of question around that. Um, not so much, I guess, particular things being in the ether, but more generally how trends evolve. Um, and uh, you know, like given that the Enfield 
bike itself stayed the same for 50 years um, up until, you know, the, the late uh, 2010s um, when it started when, I mean, I guess that was around the time that you went, oh, I'm going to choose this bike to do um, this project on. And clearly, for whatever reason, Enfield were thinking the same because not long after that, you know, they're starting to do all their prot prototypes and everything. And then there's also like this popularity of that design growing within, um, you know, the general kind of, I guess, bike lovers. But, you know, you had the cafe races and, and there was people looking toward old designs. And, and I think that also was happening in other areas of whether it's fashion or, I mean, say circus, for example, there was a, a trend at that point looking back to, um, you know, uh, visual styles from like the 50s or the 40s or whatever, um, a cabaret trend that came through. And, you know, you look at mm. the hipster trend, you know, that was all about at that, you know, a similar time about kind of going back to these sort of older designs of things, you know, more rustic looks. And is there a sort of, were you, do you think you were picking up on, on that kind of trend, whether consciously or subconsciously? Well, when I first started, the, the, the retro, that's called, mm. is when you go back and, and, and make something uh, old, new again, um, uh, when the old-fashioned becomes new fashion. Um, that was, was around a little, bit, a little bit when I first started, not much. I didn't really have a foothold. But uh, when people talk about Royal Enfield, they go, oh, it's a nice retro, and I tell them, no, it's not a retro. This is unique. This bike is a, a basically a 1957 bike that's been the same since then. Mm. It's not a retro. Where the others were retro. Yeah. Um, mm. So there is a bit of a difference, but it's still it's it's nice to see people do appreciate the old things again. You know, mm. it's uh, uh, you know the cycles that happens you see in buildings and music and mm. and, and and you know it's um. Cars and doing there so many retros out there. It's, it's very popular now mm. because I guess people people are um bored with the uh, you know white plastic bubbles or or boxes. You know what I mean? I heard um, Paul that there. I went into a. I was, I was looking at buying a a, a um, GT six fifty Enfield at one point. Yeah, right. And I was talking yep. to a dealer, and he was telling me that they were gonna they were gonna get rid of the bullet, the five hundred, because they've got this the three fifty, and then the six fifty, and that his he heard through the grapevine that Enfield were actually gonna phase out the bullet altogether, the five hundred. Correct. Bike. Is that is that what your you've heard as Correct. well? That that's right. Yeah, <clears throat> I don't want to compete with it. They got a six fifty. I still think there's a place for it, but they got rid of it. Yeah, so that's because that's the model you 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 took the five hundred bullet, right? Didn't you? Yes, and it was a and not long after I I did mine, they um, changed the cylinders, so I had to change my crankcases to fit the new cylinders. But yeah, right. That's all right. It was a nice nice upgrade. Hmm. Um, we we were doing things in parallel. I was doing things ahead of them. I put a roll of bottom bottom end on my but. Um, my bikes because I, I, it was better than the floating bush that Royal Enfield use. Um, and, of course, not long after, Royal Enfield put a uh, roller bottom in and it was exact, the exact same bearing. Right. So uh, well, I, I used, then used switched over to the later model connecting rods and, and bearings they already had made. Um, I, I went to uh, put an extra plate in the clutch and they, they were doing it probably the same time I was doing it. Wow. 
they made thinner plates and put an extra one and did exactly what I did. Um, so, yeah, we'd sort of developing side by side there a little bit. And so where, where, did, um, where did the project... So they went through three different types of cylinders. And, and where did, ultimately, where did the project get to for you and is it still going? Is this something that is is ongoing? Has it kind of been something that got to a certain point and you've put it on the shelf or what's what where's it at at this at this well point? The strange side of it was shelved um uh, because I spent a lot of my money in Indonesia trying to get the the, the imports going there. I end up having to get investors and and investors um, were all sort of happy when Royal Enfield was looking to buy it for big dollars, but then after that, they, they just when they said no, they just shut the uh, Australian bike building down against my will because I, I just wanted to keep making them. I said, look, I'll I'll just pay you per bike, every one I make, you know, make, and they just shut it down. So that was a bit of a disappointing time there for a few years and people keeping asking me, you know, like... Uh, can I buy one? Can I buy one? And I just tell them the story. Say, well, it's been shut down. It'll take a shitload of money to get it up and running again. And I thought I'll throw the throw a bit of bait out there. And a few people started talking to me about getting up and running again. And uh, eventually, I hooked up with a guy in uh, India, and uh, <clears throat> and I spent supposed to spend two years in India to get it to a certain stage. I spent four years there. I still wasn't happy the stage I got it to, but actually, hey, actually got a bike running there to build one in India. Build one anywhere is, is pretty amazing, you know. Like, um, um, I look back and think, under the conditions where I got a bike actually built, it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. Mm. Um, I had a team of 10 guys working for me, um, but I had to train everyone, you know, it was, it was really hard going. And the area we're in just didn't have the facilities to do things and, uh, you know, a lot of time was wasted, a lot of money was wasted. Um, <clears throat> so that turned into a bit of a long story. Um, anyway, I come back to Australia and things over there sort of like uh, the sort of going, but, you know, it's at a, it's a, it's a pace that that's slow that you can't notice it. So and I don't is that know where it's at now? Is that is that sort of the 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 kind of place that's that it's at very, right now? Yeah. How many? Yeah, that's where it's at now. How many are out there roughly? Uh, probably about eighteen, something like that. Um, I'm I'm blown away, Paul, at the the like just hearing you talk about the the amount of time and money and and investment that you've made both financially and energetically and emotionally for, for so many years is it it's quite extraordinary the the length that you've gone to like i mean just mm. hearing you say oh and then i spent four years in india like with the sole focus of trying like it's in, it's incredible do you ever sort of look back um or are you able to kind of look back at that whole journey that you've been have on have I seen a psychiatrist lately? No, maybe I should. <laughs> no, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, did you kind of kind of pinch yourself sometimes and go, "Wow, I've been on this amazing journey." And, and sure, it, maybe it didn't turn out the way you initially envisaged, but it's still such a fascinating and amazing story. I think that that is. Um, do you, do you feel that yourself, or are you kind of too close to it to kind well, of get you, that? No, I, I well sometimes I am, but then sometimes I look back and I go, "Yeah, well," and people remind me. Mm. You know, like 
in India, in, in India, in some circles, I, I get rock star status, you know what I mean? Mm. And I thought, well, I must have done something that impressed them. Mm. Um, uh, and, and it's in magazines all, all around the world. I've, I've had the front cover on several ma- magazines, you know. Mm. I've got piles of magazines in different countries, all through Europe and Asia and Australasia. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so I can't deny that. It's been an interesting ro- ride. It's, it's like I built this bike and it took me for a ride, um, yeah. uh, um, but not the ride I expected. And uh, mm. it, 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 got, it gained an energy of its own. And in the end, it dictated to me. Mm. I, you know, I thought this, it's like Frankenstein and his monster, you know, like it. Um, if, if Frankenstein's in control now. There's this monster that's just doing its own thing, and and uh, yeah, so I just had to go along for the ride, and then it took me to Indonesia. Uh, I even learned to speak Bahasa Indonesia over mm. there. Um, established a company over there, import export license, and all that. Proprietary limited company. Um, it took me to India. Um, didn't learn so much Hindi, maybe about 50, 60 words, but, um, you know, establish myself there in India. It's been one hell of a ride. Uh, some of it's been some of it's been downright brutal, mm. I've got to say. Um, uh, but, you know, it's some of it's been amazing. You know, I enjoyed going to the bike shows and stuff like that and, you know, and going to the factory and... Uh, testing out little developments and things and watching the bike evolve, you know. Mm. Each one was different. Each one was better Mm -hmm. Um, with the last version of fuel injected. You know, I talk talk about the other two bikes that are out there, the other V-twins, but they had nowhere near the technology I got. They had no electric start. They didn't have hydraulic lifters. They didn't have, um, I think, later on, one of them put electronic ignition on. We've now got fuel injected uh, on it. Got a very strong primary. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a whole different thing you know, because it's, I've been con- we started off a fairly good platform and uh, evolved it to fairly high level. Um, they are beautiful bikes. I mean, we'll put the links in for anyone who's listening so that they can see them. Um, if you haven't already, but that, it is a really beautiful bike. And I have to say personally, I mean, obviously you're my uncle, <laughs> so I'm a bit biased, but <laughs> I've been kind of following the journey oh, the whole way through. Yeah. And When I, I was talking to my- Dave about buying a bike and he's like, oh, you should check out my uncle's bikes. And I was like, what what, you, what does your uncle do? And he showed me the thought and I'm like, I want one. I want <laughs> how, how much, how much. I mean, I want, like, I, I honestly, if, if uh we should talk after this because I'm, I'm like one day I'm, I was like that's a that's an amazing beautiful uh, I just think it's extraordinary what you've done and and it's it's actually really fascinating to hear the just how long the process has been for you and the journey it's it's it really is um you it's know it's inspiring yeah and, it's, and your passion is inspiring and I'm, I'm not even a mobile a motorbike enthusiast I can appreciate it but um you know, like philosophically, you, 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 to throw another pun in there, that this project has been the vehicle for you to have this whole series of life experiences. And I think anyone who's in de- like embarked on a creative venture can relate to that sort of love-hate relationship that you have. Mm. You know, totally. we've made projects that, you know, in, in hindsight made no sense in a lot of ways economically or in other ways, but it really is about the process and the journey, not the destination. And, um, 
And I mean, the, what the alternative is that you didn't act on this idea that you were excited about, and and that's sort of uh, that's not uh, not an outcome you would wish yeah. either. You know, yeah. is, is there anything you would have done differently? Like at at this point, I know it's still long. I know it's not finished. You know, it's an ongoing um, thing. But at, is there is there a kind of you kind of look back at, at yeah. any distinct things that you go, I, I definitely would have done that differently. Yeah, I definitely would. I definitely wouldn't have gone to Indonesia and try and sell the singles first. I would have spent that time and energy uh, on the prototype, and, and that way I could have probably kept in control of the finances myself and steered it in a, in a better direction. Mm-hmm. Um, without you know, and once once people invest, they whether they know anything about the, the product or not, they just want to say. Mm. And then you get a group of them that just want to have a say and they all want to have a say and they're, they're coming from a point of uh, ignorance relative to the project and uh, bad decisions get made along the way as well. That's, that's um, really that's really uh, a good point. I think that, that relates across any any sort of business venture or, or particularly artistic pursuit is is in the word investment. You know, we think about it as, as purely as a fiscal thing, as a financial investment, but you have to be invested in the idea and the concept and you have to, the best investment, whether that's film or, or a project like this or a business opportunity, has to be invested in the in what the core business is aiming to do. And if they don't understand that, then their money means nothing in a way. Well, let's try to, another thing I would have done was probably not allow anyone to invest unless um, they were silent investors. Mm. Um, yeah, but you don't you don't get much of a say you know with these things it's not like investors are falling out of the sky everywhere you know yeah. they're, mm. they're hard to find and and this is this project unusual project yeah mm. yeah and, and and all these kinds of projects I think move innovation forward you know whether it's the one that gets uh, produced on a massive scale or not I think it needs people like you who are having radical ideas and trying these things and and they kind of go into i guess the collective uh shared shared knowledge of that particular art form or industry yes um and and look i probably would have looking back on it now probably would have uh, maybe even focused on on approaching companies that did something similar so they could bring mm. something to the table. They might be already mm. uh, doing doing casting a machining of something, or you know, building smaller bikes or something. So you know, but because otherwise, I'm, I, one, I'm doing it all on my own, and then next, and then on top of that, then I'm having to fight other people and educate them mm. that you know that's not the way to go. And um, yeah, it's like I'm I'm, know, I'm watching the uh, the Drive to Survive series on Netflix at the moment. The form it's about the Formula One um, competition, and and interestingly, you know, I didn't know the, the the extent of it, but there's a lot of cross pollination even in Formula One, where where teams will use a Ferrari engine, but their team Renault or or you know team one of the other smaller teams that you know they're not even using. They're getting the engine from one of their competitors. And, you know, so Red Bull has a team and a few years ago they were using Renault engines mm. and then they decided we don't want to use Renault engines anymore, we want to use Honda engines and it was this big – and meanwhile, you know, Red, Renault are driving against Red Bull and so there's a business aspect where they're like making millions of dollars of selling their engines to their competitor, weirdly, mm-hmm. and then they, they go, well, we don't want to buy your engines and then Renault are pissed off about that 
instead of going, oh, cool, we, we can. So it was, it was kind of weird, the relationships of going, they're sharing ideas and sharing parts and same with Mercedes and they, they, they sell each other parts and, and there's big money into it. But yet the irony is they then go out and race each other. It's kind of it's so mm. so fascinating mm. and bizarre. Um, a bit odd, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, every idea, every idea <coughs> is built on top of an idea before it, and so on and so forth. And that's how you get to greatness. You know, we didn't we didn't get to the moon all of a sudden. Mm. It was, it was uh, an idea that that traces back to the beginning of time. Mm. Which is why I guess you know you had that experience, Paul, of going into their their R and D workshop and they've got every kind of model of bike sitting there and they're trying mm. to work out what do they do well how can they improve it and you know drawing inspiration something that you said earlier that reminded me of like a lot of our processes is, is we will have a starting point that will will draw inspiration so you know like a show we just did recently was based on a on a book or a couple of books and so you you know you're you're, you're inspired by that which is in itself a form of of art or something that exists already exists in the world and then you want to take that and and take it in a different direction and do something new and innovative with that initial idea. So, um, yeah, I think that, that that's sort of largely what you've done. Really, is taken. What are the? What is this thing? And then what can I? Where can I take what it from the, there? What are the other possibilities? Hmm. Yeah, I guess just thinking on that, like, um, and the the podcast that we're doing, and I guess in doing this, we're sort of reaching to the edges of what we consider creative practice and who might be considered uh-huh. an artist. And I guess. Um, you know, when you look at the aesthetics of a motorcycle, yeah, you'd, you know, you'd look at design. And we recently had um, at the Brisbane's Gallery of Modern Art had a big exhibition of the history of motorbike design um, mm. as its main exhibition. But I guess you more specifically as, as some, someone as an engineer um, is even a bit more outside the box. But I guess w- would you recognize the creativity within yourself or what role that might play? In, in what you've done? Um, well, okay, I, I've been doing some thinking on that. Like art and engineering, don't, they, they're like water and oil, mm. right? They, they might live, live next to each other, but they don't mix, mm. right? Um, one's left brain, one's right brain. Um, you've, there's no art in the actions of an engineer, mm. Right when he's purely engineering, mm. right? So you you may engineer a, a car or a motorcycle, and then you bring the artists in at certain times to they do their bit. Mm. In fact, I actually met the the team Royal Enfield team in Goa when they were doing a, a release of one of their bikes there, and there's actually the there was a guy there. I can't think of his exact title, but it was something like um, um, engine stylist engineer. Or right. something like that, mm-hmm. and I thought I never knew there was such a thing. You know, the, uh, is there a school for that? Um, uh, but so he his job was to tell tell the engineers to step aside. Now it's my turn to put a few curves and lines on things. Mm-hmm. Although he's calling himself an engineer, so it's a bit of a conflict. In, you know, sort of. I uh, see because to do art is not functional. Mm. It can be functional. Mm. It can be built around something functional. It can be done on something functional. But it's not necessarily functional. So, the, so I'm mostly engineering. But when I stand back and say, "Now I've built that, I'm going to make it look good," that's when I stop engineering and start doing art. Mm. Do you does think that, it does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, it's it's like that's when it's about expression. 
you know, so the engineering aspect is about functionality and, and, and efficiency and all of these kinds of principles. And then the artistic or creative element is about, um, the aesthetics and the feel and the, the it's more romantic in its sense of like it has to it yeah. has to tell a story and it has to it has to make people feel good and so then you you kind of that's where it tips over from from being something that is purely functional to something that then makes you feel good but when the two are working perfectly together you know like when you when you have something that has has solved problems in a really elegant way uh that is as as simple and as perfect as it could be. There's something really beautiful about. It. Then on top of that, when it's got a great design and it looks great, I mean that that I would call a work of art, personally. Well, yes, yeah, so you got it because you got to sell it to someone, right? Mm. Someone's got to look and go, "Wow, that's nice," mm. right? Mm. Um, even down to the color. I hope my wife likes the color. Mm. You know, it's so that's you got to put that on the machine to make it work now. There is one area where um, I do believe art comes out of engineering, and that's the area where form follows function, right? Now, a good example of that would be a steam train. Mm. Steam trains don't have to look pretty, right? Mm. In fact, they don't. The, the only time they probably think of it about when they put a few, the last finishing touches, a bit of bit of paint and a couple of cowlings on it. Apart from that. It's purely functional because it just has to pull the train. But uh, steam trains are, are, are gorgeous. I think they're a beautiful piece of, well, you could call them art, I guess, mm. because the form follows function. Um, and it's not just in the in, in, in art, it's not just in, the, in the, the look of it, it's in the sound of it, it's in the motion of it. Mm-hmm. it it's it's just radiating in many different degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, That's why I say it's it's about expression. It's an expression of of something, of some feeling, or some you know it, you can't uh, often and it and it's often that that thing when it when you're talking about how do you feel, how does it make you feel? That's an expression of emotion or an expression of an idea. And I think that that's what you're talking about because that can take multiple forms. It can be sound. It can be something, the way something looks, the way something, you know. Yeah, like at what point does, a, you know, an electric guitar become a, a piece of art and not just a, a thing that you strum, mm. you know, and often it's also the story. Yeah, I was just going to say too, that. You know, Whose guitar are we talking about? <laughs> but, <laughs> but there are more simplified yeah. versions of that too. Nowhere near as interesting as a steam train. But I think like cargo pants is a good example because you know essentially that's cargo pure, pants. Yeah. Wow, that's the next it's, episode. Yeah, <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> because it's pure function. You know, like originally they're just designed for army people to carry extra stuff in their mm. pockets. But then at some point in the nineties, they start becoming fashionable. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, then now we're talking about popularity and and what makes something, you know. But the design, essentially, the design of them, which started out as just this function, um, eventually became fashionable. Mm, Yeah, Um, yeah, they don't have to look pretty. mm. They do. They've got beautiful artwork on the guitars. They don't have to look pretty. That's when the artist's taken over. They might be the same person, but it's when the artist took over from the the person who engineered the guitar. So you're you're talking about that in in the sense of it could be the same individual, but the aspect the the they see themselves as both engineer. Like you, you probably see yourself. There's part of you that is artist and part of you that's engineer, and that's what you're referring to. Is like yeah. at some point you've got to switch the channel and then become mm. the artist. Well, uh, that's right. <clears throat> I like. <clears throat> sorry, I like to think that I'm I'm fairly balanced between left and right brain, 
Um, <clears throat> but I probably swing to more towards uh, left brain, the engineering side of things. Um, um, but look, a good example is when I was co-designing the engine with Ian Drysdale. He's way left brain, brilliant engineer, but totally logical. And so when he wanted to build it at the front of the engine, so it'll just draw a line down there and make that square on the front of the engine. I said, no, 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 no. You put a, we put an angle on there. Um, something might match the frame or just looks good pointing out into the into the wind, you know. Right. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Um, and then <clears throat> uh, let's put a few fins on it. What do you want to put fins on it for? Does it stay cool enough? I might cool it a bit, but it'll look good. Oh, you really want to put yeah. fins on? Yes, I want to put fins on it. Yeah. So <laughs> <clears throat> I, I put fins on it. Then I matched, got fins to match the cylinders that it ran down from the uh, cylinders down into the crankcase. I had matching fins that were, uh, and, and stuff like that. And he put the oil filler up there, and I said, no, I don't want it straight. I want it on a bit of an angle. And so I, I really annoyed him on some areas, but yeah. I'm glad I did because the aesthetics of it and and this <clears throat> and the engineers from the Royal Enfield Factory when they come saw the bike, they look all over and they're, they're going, "Wow, I love the way you did this, did that, you know, to, just to make it look that little bit, little bit uh, nicer." So yeah, that's that's when the right brain started taking over and say, "Yeah, it's, you've got to stand back and say, say this beautiful." Uh, the other thing too is I. I, I Probably stole a bit of the style from Royal Enfield. Uh, I did try to keep it looking very Royal Enfield styly, mm. you know, so it looked like one of their models. Mm. Um, not so, so the engine looked alien. You know, you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. And uh, you know, he, <clears throat> Ian drew the timing cover. He drew it just all flat, squared off. And I said, no, 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 no. It's just good. So I had to remake. I got the molds made, and I had to redesign all that and give it some roundness and shape and mm. put put the name in put the name in not just flat letters uh um you know with a, the the carberry name on the side put that in with a uh, you know i played around with a few different designs myself mm. so uh, yeah and i think it's it's yeah. such a it's such a perfect example of the the way in which art exists in our world where people don't understand the artistry or don't fully appreciate they just see a motorbike without actually thinking well, motorbikes about this in many artistic ways, process. Yeah, like, they're like the perfect perfect expression of the coming together of, of both of those things, mm. you know, because style is such a massive part of it, you know, fa- fashion and style throughout, throughout the years and the different areas. I mean, how many people out there that would there be that want to ride a mi- motorbike and have no appreciation really for mechanics or engineering, but just still think they're cool and badass and want to look like James Dean. Yeah, and and motorcycle, you know, absolutely, owner, yeah. Motorcycle owners, particularly, you know, they they it, it's a perfect balance between you want a you want a bike that is functionally going to do what you want it to do and go fast or handle well, whatever your whatever your prerequisites are. Like, but people don't buy ugly bikes. No one, mm. no bike rider I know goes, oh, it's, it's a fucking great bike, but, you know, it, it's, you know. Looks it, like dog shit. Yeah, yeah, no one would buy it then. They, you know, it's, it's this constant pursuit of, of finding a model that is, is durable or robust or does exactly what you want it to do, but it also looks beautiful. And, and, and in the case of the Carberry, it's, it's conceptual as well, where yeah. people who really understand, you know, what you've done can appreciate it on that level, on a conceptual level. 
Yeah, and then I, there's a deeper level. If you, if, you, if you actually designed the bike and you're sitting on a bike you designed yourself, oh, yeah. you yeah. cannot forget You cannot forget all those parts whirring around in there, yeah. all doing their thing. You must have and, such an intimate feeling and connection with it when you're riding it. You know, like I just think of when I've tinkered with cars a little bit and, you know, fixed little bits up here and there, and at some points when you're driving, I feel like I can know where all those bolts are but that's only on a very sort of surface level but for you that must be so intimate you know that that sort of feeling and connection that you have well yeah to ride a creation especially on the prototype prototype first fired up i'm riding something that no one else has ever ridden in the world yeah. mm. you know yeah. and it's and, I, and i've made it you know it's underneath me and i mm. can i can hear and feel and i can visualize all the all the parts moving around and what they're doing and uh Mm. Yeah, so that gives yeah. me an extra depth of feel of the, and then I get off and I look and I look. I think it's beautiful. You know, everybody yeah. thinks their own baby's beautiful. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's, that's beside the point. I totally get it. I I helped design and build my house at, or my shack at my at my house. Um, my yeah. my mates yeah. are a builder, but I was we sat down together and we drew the first sketches, and then every part of the process, I was kind of there with with Luco, kind of going, "Oh, what if we could make that pitch a little bit higher and all that?" And then I'm on the tools with him, and he's like, "Hand me that, saw this up," and and so now when I live in that house, I'm like, I I actually drilled that and cut that and and banged that nail in, and it it, it has a different feel when you're when you're living in a place that you put your own literal absolutely is mm. into yeah well, that, that idea is i think at the core of human human advancement you know the 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 idea that we can that, that we can have an idea and then we can we can dream it and manifest it into reality mm. that is mm. what absolutely got, yeah. yeah yeah well that's um yes that's an amazing uh, i think that's the, it's incredible what you've done and and the fact that this started as a dream and it and it came all the way through that winding road of that journey that you've been on to this kind of end point and do you still do you still how many do you still own and do you still ride it daily is it still your kind of daily ride or um yeah it's been my daily ride off and on the, the prototype i've got i'd like a, a newer one but uh, um yeah i've got the original prototype yeah right. that's that's been going fine that's been going fine really reliable mm-hmm. wow yeah awesome amazing well it's a great it's a great story paul thanks so much for uh for joining us, and we'll chuck that uh, link and images up yeah. with the episode. Yeah, we'll throw it all up. And yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, for me personally, just to hear more about your journey um, was yeah, super lovely. And uh, I hope that the listeners get the same sense of uh, journey out of it as well. So thanks, Paul. Yeah. Okay. Well, nice talking to you guys. Thanks very much for um, taking the time to appreciate my journey. Yeah. Absolutely, and quite a journey it's been. Yeah. Cheers, mate. All right, thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye.